Greetings to you, brethren, and welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles 2015. It's a privilege to be able to bring you a message for the Feast of Tabernacles, especially for those of you who will be shut during the feast and unable to meet with God's people elsewhere in the world. Our prayers are with you uh, wherever you may be. The Feast of Tabernacles is a wonderful experience for each and every one of us. There are some great lessons to be learned from the scriptures about the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus chapter 23 is the first place we turn to in terms of understanding about the feast. It provides a few verses for us and instructions about the Feast of Tabernacles. These, of course, are of value to us as we will come back to them later in the sermon. But in starting, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 23 and read verses 33 through 36. Moses has already recorded the details of the other holy days prior to this. And then in verse 33, the Eternal spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. So the name that we use in the Feast of Tabernacles is given here in Scripture. It's otherwise referred to as the Feast of Engathering, but in this occasion, Leviticus, we refer to it as the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was to be kept for seven days to the eternal. On the first day, there will be a holy convocation. You'll do no customary work on it. For seven days, you'll offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. And then he said, on the eighth day, there will be a holy convocation. You will offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. It is a sacred assembly. You'll do no customary work on it. So these were Sabbaths on which no work was to be done. Dropping down to verse 39, we find more instructions about the feast, which are very relevant to where we will go today. We find on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the eternal for seven days. So once again, we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. On the first day, there will be a Sabbath rest, And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And then in verse 40, it tells us something special about the Feast of Tabernacles. You will take for yourself on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of a brook, and you shall rejoice before the eternal your God for seven days. You'll keep it as a feast to the eternal for seven days in the year. It's to be a statute forever in all your dwellings and all your generations. You'll observe it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. So these booths or tabernacles, as they're referred to, were to be a dwelling place, some form for the seven days of a feast. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Uh, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the eternal, your God. So here we have the basic instructions about the Feast of Tabernacles recorded for us in the book of Leviticus. Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy also note the need to keep this feast. We won't refer to those at this point in time, but we will come back at a later time. My association with the Feast of Tabernacles takes me back to the early 1960s when my parents kept the feast in the early 1960s. It was a unique event. Nobody else kept the Feast of Tabernacles unless they were of the Jewish faith. I remember the first time that I realized other people were keeping the holy days. It was in the 1970s, the mid-1970s, 
more than a decade after my parents had started keeping the feasts. I was visiting the Ambassador College Press in the United Kingdom, and I was in one of the offices there meeting with someone I had gone to college with. Lying on a bookshelf in his office was a booklet about the holy days that I'd never seen before. I picked it up thinking that we had produced a new booklet of which I was unaware. It was the same format and style as our holy day booklet. Many of you may remember the booklet style used from the late 1960s onwards with a solid primary color front cover and a black window pane on which the title appeared in white. Here, for your memory, for your remembrance, is the Pagan Holy Days or God's Holy Days Witch booklet that Mr. Armstrong wrote. The only difference with the booklet on the bookshelf was it was a different color than I'd ever seen before. The church had used primary colors for its booklets, but this one had what could best be described as an eggshell blue cover. It had a different title. I picked it up, opened it, and found to my surprise that it was not produced by Ambassador College or the Worldwide Church of God. It was produced by Bible Institute in Scotland. They had copied our covers and our layout of the booklet to a T. I didn't spend the time to find out how much of a copy inside the booklet had been used. But it led me to understand that other people were starting to keep the holy days. That period of time coincided with some rather major discoveries about the holy days that I'd like to share with you briefly this afternoon about the celebration of the festivals. The Feast of Tabernacles, for instance, seems to have a very small part in the New Testament. John references it in chapter 7 of his Gospel. John 7 verse 2 speaks of the Feast of Tabernacles. And you might say, that is all most people realized about the Feast of Tabernacles in the New Testament. Most people dismissed it out of hand saying, well, that's what Christ did before he was crucified. But now that he has been crucified and resurrected, we no, need, we no longer need to be concerned about it. But in the 1960s, two scholars translated and published a series of eight sermons given by the Bishop of Antioch at the end of the 4th century. Rather interesting sermons. Because in these sermons, John Chrysostom, the bishop, railed at his congregation, his congregants, for keeping what we label the fall festivals. Trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, the last great day. They were celebrating these days with the Jewish congregation in Antioch. In that there were eight sermons addressing these particular days, they represent uh, four per annum given over a two-year period by the bishop as he sought to deconstruct these days in the mind of his congregants or his parishioners, whatever they were called then. The fact that so-called Christians were still keeping the fall holy days at the end of the 4th century was a major revelation because all of these Jewish ideas had been expelled from the church, or so we thought, by Constantine at the beginning of the 4th century. So keep this in mind, this is almost three-quarters of a century after Constantine 
outlawed the keeping of the Jewish Passover by Christians. People who classified themselves as Christians were still keeping the fall holy days. Now, it's interesting. People will always be happy to have a good meal. But based on what this bishop was saying, these people were also fasting, which indicates that it wasn't just a good meal that they were after. They saw some value in these days, unlike the traditional history of the church which Christianity has been fed over the century. Subsequently, I found out more about the keeping of the Day of Atonement. And we can talk about that on another occasion. Clearly, people who were considered Christian and yet keeping the Day of Atonement by fasting were different than interested bystanders, just having a good time. It indicates a remarkable commitment to the ways of, the, of God that would be expected of the people of God. Around about the same time in the 1960s, an Arabic document which was written in 9th century Baghdad was translated. It spoke of a people in what is now Iraq who considered themselves followers of Jesus Christ. But they saw the Church of Rome as being a pagan institution. So we have moved forward two more centuries now to the 6th century. People living in what is nowadays Iraq, keeping the holy days, considering that the Church of Rome was pagan. They also kept atonement and all the festivals as we do. In 1967, of course, the Six-Day War enabled Jerusalem to be reunited under Israeli rule. The result of these discoveries, these events that we've outlined here, is that today we find ourselves with all sorts of groups groups keeping what they call the Feast of Tabernacles. Some at various times and for various reasons. Some keep it out of a sense of sincerity. For others, purely ecumenical reasons or interests, whatever motivates them. For Israel, the feast has become a major tourist attraction especially for Jerusalem. Go to the Internet if you have access to the Internet and do a Google search for the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. You'll be surprised what you'll find. Various churches, various groups holding major gatherings. I have a news clipping here with me from uh, a few years ago from 2011. Basically, you'll find similar postings in the Jerusalem Post and the Israeli newspapers each year about the Feast of Tabernacles. And it talks in this article about one of the groups that organizes the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, one of the Christian organizations. One of them welcomes 6,000 Christian pilgrims from over 80 countries to Jerusalem for its annual week-long celebration of the Christian celebration of Sukkah, or as we would refer to it, tabernacles. And so it goes on and talks about it. It talks about the timing of it that year, but it also says, it tells us that people came from Australia, Brazil, China, Czech Republic, Germany, Great Britain, Russia, South Africa, Thailand, and the United States. So basically, the A to Z of the alphabet. The event, they say, is the largest solidarity mission to Israel this year, injecting an estimated 15 to 18 million dollars into the local economy, 
So some people obviously rub, rubbing their hand. Interestingly, the article concluded by saying, the first feast, the first Christian feast, took place in September 1980 and was organized by mainly local pro-Israel Christian leaders. Around a thousand pilgrims from 40 nations attended. So from 1980 to the 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, we've gone from a thousand to five, six thousand plus attending from over 80 countries in Jerusalem. So we have a situation today where many people of many, you might say, denominations are keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Many on the same days that we do, using the same calendar that we use. Historically, in terms of church history, these days were kept much longer than most historians, most church historians, care to let us know about. The idea that Paul introduced a law-free gospel which did away with these for the Gentiles is not supported by history. Yes, there were people who opposed Paul who wanted a law-free gospel, as Paul himself confronts in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Yet the, the reality is summed up by an Arabic writer of the 10th century or the 9th century living in Baghdad, addressing the beliefs of people from the 6th century who called themselves Judeo-Christians, people who kept the Sabbath, the holy days, who summarized their history with the statement, it was not the Romans who became Christian, but rather the Christians who became Romanized. So given that the church kept the holy days so much longer than most church historians would want you to appreciate, What was it that they understood about the tabernacles? What can we learn? What can we appreciate, even from the pages of God's Word? We can start with the first generation, with the apostolic age, and see what they understood about the Feast of Tabernacles. One of the starting points, one of the earliest references we can have to this is in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 17. And we will read from verses 1 through 13, but we'll read the first four verses to begin with. Matthew 17 and verses 1 through 4, it said, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, uh, and John's brother, led them up onto a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I think most people would like to think that this was an off-the-cuff remark by Peter. But what formed this remark by Peter? We need to consider what it is that forms our remarks. We make remarks like this based upon associations that we can understand ourselves that we can appreciate ourselves. You will never find me making a comment like this or a comment in a situation like this, should I say, based on quantum mechanics because I know absolutely nothing about quantum mechanics. Perhaps Mr. Wallace Smith would be able to make a comment in a situation based on quantum mechanics. He knows more about the subject than I do. 
The point I'm trying to make is we make statements such as Peter made in this situation based on associations of things we know. Peter made the comment he made because he had an association in his mind of the role of Moses and Elijah and the Messiah. He coupled those three people together with a particular event. And of course, that was based in part upon the very last verses of Malachi chapter 4. So Peter had an association of these events, and it was very important. He saw these three people together in terms of the end of the age, the eschaton, the coming of a Messiah with Moses and Elijah. An appreciation of that event with the Feast of Tabernacles. He had an understanding of the expectations of this event. And so he spoke about it in the way he did. The use of a term tabernacles in this particular section in Matthew 17 and verse 4 is very telling because it is not out of place. It was well chosen and not a happen chance use of the word as many would consider. The expectation was that Moses and Elijah would come at the end of days. Peter understood the setting that he was seeing. Very important to appreciate that. What was wrong with Peter's statement? Was it a focused on his physical appreciation of the feast and not what it really pictured? He had yet to learn the real lessons of the Feast of Tabernacles. But the booths or temporary dwellings were not the real focus of the feast. They exist to teach us a larger, more encompassing spiritual lesson that requires a change in each and every one of us. It requires a change from the physical to the spiritual. And so we find that Jesus Christ spoke to Peter as a result of Peter's comment. Verse 5, while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of a cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Listen to what he has to say. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? So they're trying to put these things into context themselves. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then they understood, then the disciples understood he spoke about John the Baptist. So the instruction from heaven in the first place, from the Father in the first place, before Jesus Christ spoke to them, was that they were to listen to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second Moses. Hear you him is a reference to what was instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 through 19, Moses instructed the children of Israel and recorded for all times, the eternal your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. 
And so the instruction from the Father to Peter, James, and John to listen to Jesus Christ was really a restating of Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so in verse 16 of chapter 18, it says, According to all uh, you desired of the, the eternal your God in Horeb in the day of your assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the eternal my God, nor let me see the great fire any more, lest it die. Verse 17, he said, The eternal said to me, What you have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like unto you from among your brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I have commanded him. So once again, you get an echo of the same instruction to Moses in the words of the Father to the apostles, to these three apostles. It shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it out of his hand. Did the apostle Peter, for instance, learn anything from what the Father said and what Jesus Christ said subsequently? I believe if we turn to Second Peter, we'll find very clearly that the Apostle Peter found and learned greatly from this experience. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 11 through 13. Peter writes to the church, he said, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Looking forward to that time when the kingdom of God is going to be established. When tabernacles will become a reality upon this earth. He goes and talks of the day of God. Then he goes beyond that to the time at the end of the millennium of the great white throne judgment. When the heavens will be dissolved being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. He said, what we're looking for is, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We will come back to that in a few moments' time. So Peter learned something very important from his experience, that transfiguration. His focus was removed from the physical onto what it is all really about. What is the Father's plan all about? It's not just about the hegemony of a nation. It is about righteousness and about the real rule of God the Father. Matthew also understood the relationship of what happened on the mountain. He understood the relationship of what happened in that transfiguration to the kingdom of God. Note the way he was inspired to record these events in Matthew chapter 17. By looking at what preceded it at the end of chapter 16. Chapter 16 and verses 27 through 28, Matthew said, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. The end of the age, the return of Jesus Christ, the establishment of a kingdom of God. And then he will reward each according to his works. So this was Jesus Christ instructing the disciples. Jesus continued in verse 28 by saying, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So some of those men were going to see that glory. Peter, John, and James, his brother, were then taken into the mountain to see that event, see that future event as a reality for them. So we have this wonderful account here in Matthew chapter 17. The apostles seeing what the kingdom of God and the Feast of Tabernacles was really going to be like from the Father's perspective. 
in writing the New Testament, in inspiring the New Testament to be written, our Father did not need to restate everything again that he had already inspired to be written. He doesn't change just as the Word does not change. He doesn't change his mind about his purpose or about his plan. He is consistent. The end result is that the New Testament is not a restatement of everything that the Father intended. In many ways, it is a progress report on how it is working out. It develops and expands elements that we need to be aware of. It doesn't replace or supersede. Hence, the holy days are not spelled out in the same way as they are in the Old Testament. Yet one of the things we oftentimes overlook is that the imagery that is used of the feasts in the Old Testament is used repeatedly in the New Testament. It's not necessary to say, this is about the Feast of Tabernacles. But the imagery that is used of a feast in the Old Testament is used again in the New Testament. Peter understood from the imagery of Jesus together with Moses and Elijah that this was about the end of days, about the establishment of the kingdom of God. It didn't have to be spelled out to him. He was able to take those mental images he had from reading the scriptures and understand what was going on. It's easy for us to gloss over these because that's not necessarily part of our thinking today. People want exact words. They want things to be in scare quotes to show that it is being quoted exactly. But notice this reference in the book of Revelation. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, and we will read a section here through a verse 17. Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, not verse 9, rather. My Bible highlights this as being a multitude from the great tribulation. I'd like you to read it. Read it with me and we will read it very carefully. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count, number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on his throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessed and glory and wisdom Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where did they come from? And John said to him, Sir, you know. And so he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of a great tribulation, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of a lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun will not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the fountains of waters. And God, or the Father, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a beautiful portrayal of the kingdom of God. People who have been saved from this world, who have been transformed into born-again 
sons of God. But there are various statements in this section that should make us think about the Feast of Tabernacles. And I put it to you, brethren, that what we have here is a portrayal of what the Feast of Tabernacles is like before the throne of the Lamb and of His Father. And obviously, it is very much collapsed for us. But let's look at some of the imagery that is used here in the New Testament in relation to the Feast of Tabernacles. Firstly, we find if we go back to the early verses, it talks about the nations and uh, tribes. It talks about uh, uh, all of these different groups of people before the throne. And so they are nations, they are tribes, they are tongues, peoples. They're all standing before the throne, before the Lamb. One of the great features we can appreciate of the Feast of Tabernacles is the way in which all nations will end up worshipping the Eternal. Oftentimes we'll turn to Zechariah, the last chapter, chapter 14, and verses 16 through 21, where it talks about the nations keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 16, it tells us, that it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They will be coming up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Where will the Lamb's throne be? As the King of kings and Lord of lords, it will be in Jerusalem. And it shall be, it said, of all those nations, whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Eternal of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If a family of Egypt, for instance, will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. Drought, famine, starvation will be a problem. They, will, they shall receive the plague with which the Eternal strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of any nation that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So Zechariah is foretelling and prophesying a time when all nations, even physical nations, will come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. The book of Revelations is talking about people who have been saved. They're not physical people who can disobey. These are people who now are part of the family of God. But we have exactly the same imagery, all the nations of the earth, all of the families, the tribes, the peoples, the tongues, coming up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles as it is for the physical people who still survive into the kingdom of God, so it will be for the God family in keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And so verse 20, 21 talks about the situation that is going to exist in Jerusalem and how it will be kept in those days, how Jerusalem will be a holy place. But the interesting thing, brethren, is Zechariah's prophecy, ultimately speaking, is based upon the law of God. Notice the instructions about the sacrifices at the feast. We read in Leviticus chapter 23 that there was to be sacrifices offered on a daily basis throughout the Feast of Tabernacles. Numbers chapter 29 and verses 12 through 32 lists in detail the sacrifices that had to be given. It is rather interesting because three types of animals had to be offered. Bulls, goats, and lambs. And the bulls are of great interest because we find that while the other offerings were consistent throughout the seven days of the feast, the young bulls differed day by day. 
They started with 13 bulls on the first day and ended on the seventh day with just seven. So there was a decreasing number of bulls by the day, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, and 7. If you sum those up, they come to 70. In other words, over the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, 70 young bulls had to be sacrificed. The rabbis understood that the purpose for the 70 bulls was representing the 70 nations of the earth that were listed in Genesis chapter 10. So even the rabbis understood the Feast of Tabernacles was going to be a time in which all nations would be drawn into a relationship with the Messiah, with Jesus Christ, and with his Father, above all else. They understood that in terms of Zechariah chapter 14. And we can understand that as well. And so, Revelation chapter 7 talks about all nations, peoples, tongues, tribes, and so forth, gathering before, people being drawn from those to keep what? The Feast of Tabernacles. It is a Feast of Tabernacles which is largely being described there. Leviticus chapter 23 required that the feast be celebrated in the temple or at the tabernacle. People were to come to where the Eternal had placed his name. That was the only way in which the sacrifices could be offered. And so we go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 37. Verse 37, it said, These are the feasts of the Eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Eternal, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. It was all set out there for the people to understand. It was in the temple. We come back to Revelation chapter 7. Where is the locus of this vision that John is experiencing? Is it just anywhere? We find in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7, we see all these people gathered together in this verse 9. And then in verse 15, it talks about these people. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. They are there serving with Jesus Christ in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. It has echoes as well of Zechariah chapter 14 and how all of Jerusalem will be holy to be eternal. And so the temple is the locus of this vision that John sees, the locus for the true gathering of the Feast of Tabernacles, for the sacrifices to be undertaken. What else does the vision contain? It talks about the people having palms. Here are spiritual people, members of the God family, so to speak, who have come out of the great tribulation, no longer hunger, no longer thirst, no longer subject to the heat of sun. In other words, they're no longer physical beings. But they are parading before the throne of the Father and of Jesus Christ with palms. Why palms? Because palms commemorate or palms were commanded for the Feast of Tabernacles. In Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 40, we find that they were on the first day of the feast to take for themselves the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the bower of leafy trees, the willows of a brook, and you shall rejoice before the eternal your God for seven days. 
rather interesting in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 17, the children of Israel, after having crossed the Red Sea, came to a place called Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. The palm tree was very important. One time I served in the South Pacific. My first visit to Tonga, the island kingdom of Tonga, the local minister told me in those days, he said, the palm tree is the perfect gift from God. Now, he was talking about the coconut palm as opposed to the date palm that was being described in Scripture. But yet, a very similar situation exists between these palm trees. And he then went on to explain how the the palm tree produces coconuts, which have uh, moisture for people. They can drink the milk. They can eat the flesh of the coconut. They can use the shell of a coconut for an instrument for drinking water or eating food. They can use the husk of the coconut for weaving and making ropes and so forth. The palms of the trees could be used for roofing houses and making walls of houses. The bower of a tree could be used for building a house and much more much more useful houses for them than those that we make today out of corrugated iron, which becomes very destructive in a cyclone or a hurricane, such as these people suffer from time to time. So literally everything that came out of a ground in terms of a palm tree was of benefit to people. It wasn't just decorative. Obviously it could provide shade and it could be useful in that way. But every element of a tree was useful to these people. And so they were greatly impressed with it. And so we might have some of that being portrayed here in terms of the palm tree, the way in which our Heavenly Father has provided for the needs of his people. But we also find that palms were part of the decoration of the temple. And so we come to the time of the building of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 29 through 33. And we find that the temple was decorated with a number of different objects. Verse 29, Solomon carved, or Solomon had carved, I would guess it would be a better way to describe it, he had carved all the walls of the temple all around both the inner and outer sanctuaries with carved images of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. So here, palm trees were used together with cherubim and flowers as part of the decoration of the temple. The floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. Verse 31, for the entrance of the inner sanctuary, He made doors of olive wood. Uh, The lintel and doorposts were one-fifth of a wall. The two doors were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold, and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So palm trees became a feature of the temple. They weren't, as we understand it, a feature of the tabernacle. But Solomon was inspired to do that in the temple. Why are they important? Well, the psalmist gives us an insight. The psalmist gives us a very important insight. Because in Psalm 52, in verse 12, he describes the palm tree in terms of a fruit of godly character. Where he says in verse 12, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. And that, excuse me, is Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. In other words, the palm has a relationship to righteousness, that ultimate aspect that our Father is seeking to develop within us. 
He will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. And so we have the cedars of Lebanon used very extensively in the temple. But if we go back to Revelation chapter 7, we find that these people have been clothed in white, a representation of having been made righteous. So the palm tree and righteousness then translates into the white robes in which the people appear. If we were to go back to Matthew chapter 17, how does Jesus Christ appear to the disciples? He appears in dazzling white, a representation of his righteousness, of his godly character that he possessed, of a godly character that we are to develop. Now, let's go back to Exodus, the book of Exodus, because in Exodus chapter 19, Israel is told to gather before the eternal on the day of Pentecost. We're taking a few steps back in terms of God's plan. We're going from tabernacles to Pentecost. But it teaches us something about why white and white garments is so important. On this occasion, Moses was told to instruct the people that they were to consecrate themselves. This is in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 19. Israel is at Sinai, appearing before the eternal. They've come before the mountain as he had instructed Moses in Exodus chapter 3. They have come, and Moses is told to tell the people, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Eternal will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sign of all the people. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. And so Moses went down the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. In other words, an element of purity had to be maintained because they were coming before the eternal. Now, we can read that in a very matter-of-fact manner, approach. Wash your clothes. For most of us, that means putting them in a washing machine, setting the dial, pushing the on button, and coming back in an hour's time to take them out and put them in the dryer. For some of our brethren in other parts of the world, it means taking a tub of water and scrubbing board and soap and washing them the way my grandmother would have done beforehand. We have a very, uh, the idea of washing our clothes is sort of shaped by the lives we live today. You might say the translation of the Bible oftentimes is very much shaped by the the lives of the translators, what they perceived. The purpose of this instruction to Israel was that Israel was to be set aside for a holy purpose. The washing wasn't just to be a casual event. The term that is used for washing is used frequently throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, where it talks about something becoming purified so it is accepted to God. But perhaps the most telling occasion in which this word is used is in Micah chapter 3, where it talks about the coming of the Messiah. Malachi chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger He will prepare the way before me, and the the eternal whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of a covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the eternal of hosts. So here we have the, the Messiah coming to his temple, where he will be enthroned to rule over the nations of the earth, to be the headquarters of the earth, as we understand in terms of the Feast of Tabernacles. But in verse 2, Malachi is inspired to challenge us. Who can endure the day of his coming? 
This is a very difficult time. Who will stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire. Great heat, intensity to purify. A refiner's fire is not our normal campfire over which we roast marshmallows or create s'mores. It is something of great heat, blasting away with a supply of oxygen provided by bellows to create heat that will melt metals. And it's heat that a person who's dealing with it has to protect themselves against. And so he said, who can survive the day of his coming? Who can stand? He's going to be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. So the refining, the refiner's fire is paralleled with this idea of washing of clothes, the same word that was used in Exodus chapter 19, verse 10, etc. This concept of the purification of clothes. For what purpose? So that they will be white. Just as Jesus Christ is in white. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. So this aspect of righteousness comes back and it's coupled with the cleansing of garments. With Jesus Christ being like someone coming with fuller's soap, as it said in the King James Version. The New King James says it's laundry soap. But this is the most effective soap that any housewife has ever been able to use because it can turn the dirty white, white righteousness. David, in Psalm 51, understood this as well where he talked in repentance before his maker over his sin. In verse 7, he said, Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me. Wash me with this full of soap, and I will be whiter than snow. Most of us can appreciate that. Most of us get to see snow or see pictures of snow from time to time. And you can understand what freshly fallen snow is like. Pristine, white. And David said, by the time you finish with me, I will be whiter than snow. And so we have this wonderful portrayal. The end result of the vision is that the world contains righteousness the fruit of God's Holy Spirit guiding and dwelling in the lives of individuals based on the law of God that changes not. So we have this portrayal of people in white garments representing the very righteousness of God. The Tomorrow's World program on telecast frequently deals with the problems of this world. They are legion. They are many. We are unable to change them because people are guided by self-interest rather than outgoing concern for one another. Change can only come as people come to learn to live a life that is in harmony with the way of God, a way of life that is based on outgoing concern for one another rather than self-centeredness as this world currently operates. The end result will be a changed world, changed because of the changed relationship of humans with their creator and a change in the relationships between human beings and their fellow. Now we will seek to give. We will give to our Creator. We will give to our Father. 
what is due to them so that we can build a relationship with them. And we will show that same respect to our fellow man. All humanity will learn that as they keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The miraculous changes to the physical aspect of the earth can come about as a result of these changes in the human mindset. The changes have to be a measure. Changes have to measure up to the righteousness of God. So we ask ourselves then, what did the New Testament understand about the Feast of Tabernacles? What did the early church understand about the Feast of Tabernacles? To them, seeing what John has written, seeing what Peter has written, seeing what Matthew has written, just to take three examples, provides us with a view that they had a very real appreciation of the Feast of Tabernacles. It wasn't just a physical event. They looked beyond just the seven days that they were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles to the reality of it in the kingdom of God. And they looked forward to that in a very great way. Their behavior to one another was based on that. They looked forward to that. John chapter 13 and verse 33, Jesus Christ told his disciples, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, and that you have love for one another. You have concern, you have outgoing concern for one another. The disciples certainly showed that towards one another after the day of Pentecost in a way they had never shown before. They understood the necessity for that change in their lives. And so Peter in in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 11 through 12 tells us very clearly, tells us very clearly, these things are going to be dissolved. All of these things, all of the physical earth, the heavens that we like to explore and speculate about at the present time. All of this is going to be dissolved. And he said, what manner of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? In many ways, he's talking about this righteousness again, but using different synonyms. He's talking about holy conduct and godliness He understood that we have to be concerned about righteousness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Yes, we can look forward to the Feast of Tabernacles. We can look forward to the establishment of the kingdom of God. But ultimately speaking, The physical earth, which is improved and enhanced and made a fitting dwelling place for humanity during the millennium, is ultimately speaking going to be replaced by something even greater still. Peter came to understand that the important thing was not just the physical, the physical tabernacle, so to speak. He came to realize what makes us is so very important. Our bodies are presently a physical tabernacle. Our bodies by themselves are not righteous. The best righteousness of man is, as Isaiah says, as filthy rags. We look forward to the time when we will have a new body in which righteousness will dwell Just as Peter said, we look forward to the new heavens in which righteousness will dwell. So we keep the Feast of Tabernacles just as the early church did. We celebrate these seven days, keeping the days holy to the eternal, just as the the early church did, just as the apostles did. We honor the eternal. But we don't just look at them in terms of the physical circumstances of our life. We look forward to the kingdom of God. We look forward to the righteousness that will be afforded to humanity in a way that is not possible today. 
We look forward to the fact that we will be part of the very family of God, that we will be able to be sons of God, and we will be able to rule with Jesus Christ as a result of being purged and cleansed in this life so that we can put on righteousness and we can be part of the bride of Christ. Have a wonderful feast, brethren. And if you have the opportunity during the feast, take a glass of wine and raise it in a toast to the kingdom of God. May it soon come. Humanity as a whole needs it desperately.